This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on Triple R 102.7 FM or as I'm tending to say every week now, welcome to the podcast or the radio on demand playback service if you're catching up with us that way. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined tonight by Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Good evening to you both. Good evening, Thomas. <laughs> Good evening. I'm, I'm very hoarse of a voice this evening, so I will uh, do, do my utmost still to make sense, but I might try to be a bit pithier. <laughs> Lots of pith. Alexandra Helen Nicholas would normally be with us and wanted to be with us tonight, but she's uh, too unwell to make it in, which we were a bit a bit sorry about. And actually, on that point, we do want to acknowledge uh, the death of Prince, somebody whose contribution to popular culture is enormous and cannot be understated. And he had quite a big involvement with film as well, which I'm sure quite a few people are aware of this fact. I think we're going to save, though, our sort of more extended words of tribute next week because he was someone who meant an awful lot to Alexandra. And if you looked at her Facebook or Twitter feed during the week, you would have seen an article of hers that she, uh, that we reposted that she wrote about Prince. So um, we are very much acknowledging the uh, the significance of, of his death, but um, we would like to give the, the real words of importance to Alex when she's back with us next week. Uh, before we go any further, I do want to say you may have been listening to this station for a while and have never subscribed, your subscription may have lapsed and you just completely forgot all about that, or you may know a dodgy freeloading friend who you don't want to be dodgy anymore, who listens to the station and hasn't subscribed. This is a really good time to do it. What's the date? The 25th. So you've got less than a week now to take advantage of the April amnesty thing that's happening here on Triple R. Triple R is a not-for-profit independent community broadcasting service, so we are reliant on your subscriptions as well as sponsorship to keep the station running each year. Because more than half the station's revenue does come from listener subscriptions. April Amnesty is one of two times during the year, as well as Radiothon, when we make this plea to you. Even if you only listen to this show, even if you only listen to it as a podcast, even if you only listen to last week's show on uh, Dario Argento, if that was your only contact with the station and you loved it, and I know a lot of people did, that exploded all over Twitter and uh, Facebook... Even if that's your only contact, you really need to be subscribing to the station to, to make things continue to work the way it has been. So please head over to rrr.org.au and follow those links. Now, speaking of last week's show, um, typical, the show that I kind of take a step back on is the one that's really popular. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm sure that is the reason, Thomas. <laughs> I, I loved actually sitting in here listening to that show last week. It was a real pleasure predominantly pushing buttons and listening to the three of you talk about um, RRR Argento. That was uh, really quite exciting. And we received a really thorough and interesting email from a listener named Stacey, who has emailed us before, actually, who said, you know, he just listened to the episode, great stuff as always, no surprises there. And I'm going to read just the next bit of his email because I think he, he raises an interesting point that we've started to discuss more and more the last few weeks. Stacey says, What really struck me were the comments about people reacting negatively to Suspiria for not making sense. I think this is part of a huge problem with contemporary mainstream cinema appreciation where vast numbers of audiences are seemingly no longer able to enjoy movies that, as you put it, or as we put it, privilege the emotional sensory experience over narrative. He says it's so depressing to encounter somebody who's able to enjoy, who, whose ability to enjoy a movie is predicated entirely on the movie being as strictly literal and sensible as possible. Uh, curiously, he then goes into Man of Steel as an example of a film he really loved that was derided for not making a whole lot of sense. Um, I actually quite enjoyed the film as well, but I think when we discussed it, a lot of the criticism around it was based on the aesthetics. So, 
Oh, Stacey, you had me, then you lost me. <laughs> but we still love you. But, um, but I quite like that. I, I do sort of appreciate the point. I know, you know, I loved Avatar and I got a bit depressed when people talked about how generic it was or gravity for how simplistic it was or for Godzilla for not having a good enough character development. And I was saying, but this is, this is in with these cinema of attractions type thing. And that, it is only one element in a broader spectrum of, of elements of cinema that are worthy of criticism too. Exactly. I mean, I think the thing to keep in mind is, is uh, pulling apart a film's narrative is sometimes necessary if the film is predicated on being narrative driven. I mean, yeah. I don't think we want to make any blanket statements here, but there are films like Suspiria, which is so obviously meant to be emotional and sensory. I think the the key to most criticism, we're getting off track here, but is to judge a film on its own terms or what you presume its own terms to be. And the default is often people want to look for that story and character development. And what we're saying is that's not always the thing. One final point from Stacey I quite liked. He says... I hear this from people who should know better and when it comes to movies they happen to like, which is usually something like Star Wars, then all the same problems magically disappear and they can suspend disbelief once again and enjoy the movie. In other words, this nitpickiness can be highly selective depending on a subjective feeling from the start. I think he's got a point. I've probably been guilty of that as well. <laughs> but thank you, Stacey. Oh, that really huge email. I won't go into the rest of it, but it, it actually got quite funny too. Um, but thank you for your feedback. If you do want to get in touch with us... What cave is it? Film. Play, Plato's Cave Plato's Film. Plato's Cave Film, all one word, lowercase. But thank you. you. You did set it up at gmail.com or head over to the Plato's Cave page on the Triple R website. There's more information there as well, including links to us on Facebook and Twitter. Let's get on with tonight's show. We're going to look at Midnight Special, a mysterious science fiction road movie by Jeff Nichols, the director of Mud and Take Shelter. We'll also be discussing the documentary Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, Dead, uh, which is about the highly influential satirical magazine National Lampoon. But first, we're going to look at a very different type of documentary. We're going to discuss Cartel Land, an American film released in released on Australia released in Australia on home entertainment last month. It won a number of awards la- at last year's Sundance Film Festival, where it premiered, and more recently it was nominated for the Best Director Awards at the BAFTAs and Academy Awards. Cartel Land follows two sets of militia or vigilante groups. One group are Americans trying to stop Mexican drug cartel activities from getting into the USA from across the border. The other group we follow are Mexicans wanting to rid the region they live in from cartel members and drug violence. Uh, This is an intense film that for me at times felt like Restrepo and other recent war documentaries. Did either of you have a similar feeling while watching this film? Restrepo I hadn't thought of until you mentioned it, but I think that's a really useful comparison. Um, The the films that came to mind for me straight away were... On the fictionalised side of things, Sicario, yeah, um, because it's set on you know basically a border war about a border conflict and dealing with the the cartels. But the other film or documentary brand, I guess, um, which this film brought to mind because it's one we talked about it only a couple of weeks ago, is the Vice brand of documentary, but in a, in a positive way. And I think Cartel Land, because of the, I guess, the violence, the potential to provide quite a sensationalised view of Mexican cartel violence, of immigration, the potential to pick the American vigilantes as some sort of redneck renegades. I think this does a really sophisticated job of not entering into tabloid territory. And I really appreciate that, particularly when you're dealing with the violence of of beheadings and so on. There were a number of moments in this documentary that could have been incredibly sensationalised, and I think it pulls back. Approaching the subject matter in that way actually is far more effective in terms of the audience. But what I really took away from this this film and what I I guess I really appreciated 
in terms of its sophistication was the way it explores issues of power, power and revolution, really, and the, the way that these three kind of levels of or institutions within, particularly the the, the Mexican um, side of the border, the, the cartels, the government. And the vigilante groups, particularly one referred to as the uh, auto defences, which is sort of a, a group that comes together in order to fight cartel violence, but as the documentary explores, ends up or potentially starts to become the thing that it was created to stop. And I thought it was a really fascinating and complex, I- in many ways, look at those power relationships. Yeah, it's a, it is a very clever documentary in that it foreshadows some of those developments. We hear tell of how previous cartels had flourished and then died out only to be replaced by other cartels who helped extinguish them um, and then adopted uh, worse strategies of uh, domination of the neighbourhoods, the provinces. I guess there's quite a large expanse of land covered just in this film alone, but we get a sense that it's not really restricted uh, this sort of activity to just a a part of the country, even though the the film does have to hone in on a particular part, otherwise I guess its purview would just be too broad. Um, I, I think the Mexican side of this film is much stronger than the American and it's given a lot more focus um, and in a way that story is much more compelling uh, this, this idea of, of revolutionaries, uh, an ineffective government that really is much too close to the um, uh, illegal activity in this film to ever be in, in, in this, in, well in Mexico to actually be at all effective as lawmakers the whole, whole, uh, whole question of whether vigilante justice is acceptable is, is, is explored in both strands of the film, um, but I think the, the Mexican side is all the stronger. It, it's interesting you're mentioning uh, other documentaries that this film brought to mind, but I was also uh, experiencing um, recollection of some recent fiction films as well as just generic uh, strategies adopted by the Western in particular. This film is shot in cinemascope. Uh, It's very cinematic. It's actually much more beautifully shot than it really should be in a way. You feel that the camera operators and directors and so on are in the battle lines here. They're in the trenches and yet half the time it seems like they must have gone to some trouble to beautifully light these scenes or spend a lot of time in post colour grading them because it just looks too beautiful. Um, But certain Western tropes come up time and again, not just because these are frontier battles being waged but there's even one moment where this particular figure who's leading the uh well, let's call them revolutionaries in a way uh strides into town and and really almost spaghetti western like music is yeah. behind him as he he's got his hat and his mustache and this purposeful stride and it's all a bit um it's it's, it's a real blur moment there for me i found that actually a bit of a struggle i thought i is that how we? Is that necessary in order for people to interpret reality these days? That we need tropes that are from the world of fiction in order for people now to come at documentary filmmaking and understand what's going on on screen. And um, hmm. a, a recent fiction film that I was reminded of was called Heli. I, I don't remember if that screened here at MIF. It was a sensation at Cannes a year or two ago. No, it never made it to Australia it whatsoever. I don't think. Oh, it didn't. Oh, I, I saw that overseas, and it was devastating. And it, it, had scenes very much like what we know is going on because we see certain uh, photographs in this documentary of uh, decapitated, uh, well, just heads and also people hanging um, from a bridge. And we've seen some of this in the media here before as well. But that film dramatised some of this and, and uh, it was it's a, a brutal, brutal film but powerful. And, and in a way, even though it's fiction and uh, this one very much a uh, documentary... Uh, to me, that was actually the more powerful film. 
Yeah, you make some very interesting points, Cerise, and I, I found the music sometimes a bit overbearing in this film too and a bit too trying to direct us into feeling certain ways. But then the film would do some very interesting things with that creation of expectations. I actually... My, my, I was really suspicious and cynical about this film at first, especially with some of the Mexican stuff, hearing the stories of what had happened to people, seeing the photographs, and then finding out we're about to capture two of the guys we've just heard it on these horrible things. This is your moment of violent catharsis and retribution. It was building, it was building, and then we cut to this scene where they have these two guys and the music cuts out the camera work is very handheld and basic and these two guys who you know are guilty of horrendous crimes look young and pathetic and they're just getting punched in the face and the stomach by these militia men and suddenly it's very confusing how i'm meant to feel about this and i thought that was a kind of brilliant moment um but yeah the the, the leader of this mexican group i thought this has to be an actor like this man he looks amazing he and he's so incredibly charismatic and that obviously has a big part of why he is the person he is again though the film withholds information about him and as we get into later stages we find out he's not the most perfect golden halo person either although the things he, he's guilty of i don't think really hold up to some of the things he's fighting against like i, I yeah we, we discover aspects of his personal life that i thought yeah i don't know that that maybe makes him a bad husband it doesn't make him on the same level as a cartel member um Ultimately, though, I was I was frustrated that we could, couldn't stay with the Mexican story. I, I didn't. I, I I saw they were trying to do a juxtaposition there, but the Mexican story was nowhere even near the border, and the amount of time we spent with the Americans was a lot shorter. There was very little action. That the one sequence where there is some action that involves them then working with the border guards, I was left asking, "What the hell is happening here? How come the border guards are working with these guys?" That wasn't resolved. I think the film does a good job not to paint these Americans as sort of brutal redneck racist, but I think those guys are a pretty good job just by themselves, even though they are very articulate and, again, quite charismatic. I mean, I now know who is voting for Trump, these guys. <laughs> in all sincerity, these guys are articulating the frustrations of Trump supporters, but the, the, I, will, I found them quite frightening. And I, I guess that was the point, that they're trying to create a, you know, um, a comparison between these sort of alarmist, almost crazy vengeful americans who are very much driven by race and they keep saying that they're not but it keeps coming into the conversation where what's happening over in mexico is a radically different situation to what's happening in in the u.s so so i think i overall really like this film and had a lot of admiration for it but but i wish we just focus on the mexican story which for me was infinitely more interesting yeah look i think you're right i think the structural issues are probably the the standout criticism i'd have and i think in, in some ways it's it's because structurally it's almost trying to do two things on the one hand it's trying to provide an idea of the the balance and a mirrored conflict and a mirrored look at how vigilantism exists on both sides of the border and these these issues that are occurring within mexico particularly michoacan aren't you know specific to that area that they exist on on both sides but it's also trying to do the other element which you just brought up and that is that demythologizing the idea of the revolutionary and also the hero worship and i think it's fascinating and i didn't, didn't even pick this up until we got about halfway through the documentary that the narrative of the documentary is essentially flashback because it begins with the Dr. Jose Morales figure where we see him at the end of the film with his gun saying, I'm waiting because I know they're coming for me. This all began two years ago. And then we, we, huh, we yeah. go back. So we see him and we're identifying with the revolutionary figure, this sort of mythical figure. And as you mentioned, he's kind of mythologized through his 
like he looks like he's walked straight out of a Sergio Leone film. And then I love the way the documentary starts to demythologize, as you mentioned, both the vigilante justice and our complicity in, in terms of wanting this violence, but also his worship figure. And that scene in, in the car with his, with what transpires between him and a, and a, a female subject in the film was an interesting turning point in the way in mm. which it starts to shift our attention. Even though, as you mentioned, it's not the crimes that he's potentially guilty of aren't equivalent to the cartel. But I thought that was really impressive. The one other thing that, which is sort of a, a minor point that I wanted to point out is, and this, uh, the director, Matthew Heineman, was also the, the cameraman for the production. And there's a moment where he's in a car, the car is taking fire, he leaps from the car with the camera but still has the presence of mind to adjust the exposure setting while he's taking fire. I thought... Okay, you know what? If, if nothing else, you deserve massive props <laughs> for your dedication to this project. To have the peace of mind to go, actually, this shot isn't quite perfectly composed. Let me just change this while I'm, you know, dodging bullets. Amazing. There are some impressive moments like that where you suddenly realise, oh, wow, the person holding the camera is in direct danger right now. Yeah. It seems weird for talking about a documentary, wondering whether video game aesthetics might at all have been an influence in the cinematography. But in that particular moment, I was very aware that we went quickly from a first-person perspective to that over the shoulder thing which is a i think well back in the day i haven't really played a lot of uh, first person shooters in many years but i do recall it was quite often a little key press and suddenly you'd shift from one view to the other and that film did exactly that in that moment uh, hmm. it's a confronting film it is strong i you know, i think i share the same reservations as both of you cartel land is available on home entertainment right now you're listening to plato's cave we're going to talk about midnight special in just a moment you're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Midnight Special, the latest film by American filmmaker Jeff Nichols. And we've discussed these two previous films, Mud and Take Shelter on Plato's Cave. Uh, family, fatherhood and masculinity have emerged as dominant themes in Nichols's films, along with questions of how we perceive reality and whose version of reality can we trust. This is all present in Midnight Special, a film about two men who have kidnapped a young boy from a cult. Now, the film deliberately withholds an awful lot of information for a significant degree of its running time, but Nichols has stated that Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind and John Carpenter's Starman were direct influences, which means I think we can safely reveal that it's a, a road movie slash science fiction film. Now, given that... I think it's safe to say we all grew up with the films that Midnight Special is evoking and inspired by. What do we make of the results? Did I grow up with those in the first one? I think I only ever saw Starman on TV. Mm -hmm. um, Close Encounters came out, what, 70-something? 77? Close Encounters was 77. Yeah. Starman was 84. Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah, it was. No, you're right. That is. Yep. Yeah. Uh, at, at any rate, I, uh, uh, Starman very much influenced by Spielberg too. It sort of was described at the time as an adult AT. Yeah, Carpenters go at Spielberg. Yeah. 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 Uh, look, I haven't seen Mud or what was the other one? Take, Take Shelter. Shelter. No. So this is my introduction to Jeff Nichols's work, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I've heard good things about those other films. This one held me, uh, except at intervals I wondered. Um, about certain leaps of uh, narrative faith the film asked of me um, because for all of the parts that this is a road movie it's sort of also a procedural there's a an investigator or various people trying to follow these this these kidnappers ostensible kidnappers and for the life of me i can't understand how either of them uh, sort of the good guy sensitive sympathetic adam driver character or the 
seemingly baddies, though. Are they really baddies? Because we're not quite sure about whether they're working for a cult or quite what that cult even believes in. Does it believe in, um, is it a spiritual figure or is it perhaps something a little more or supernatural or, or not of this earth, we might say? Or it seems, but they seem to be using some quite brutal techniques to go from place to place. So it's extremely unclear to me how they went from, how they knew which place to go to next and how to get there. There's there's a whole whole lot of things the film seems to just gloss over. And Adam Driver, at some point, is in um, you know one of those classic sort of places, uh, non places you could say. It's a, a war room of sorts. There's just a whole lot of screens and people falling asleep, and there's numbers on a, a board. And somehow, at some point, he makes sense of them. And for the life of me, I made no sense of the sense he made. But we just expected to go with that. And each time I was asked to be just to go along with something, I, I sort of withdrew from the film a bit, such that when the big revelation comes at the end, to me it all felt rather underwhelming. Uh, and even if there is a nice little quasi punchline after the big reveal, um, it's still kind of flat. So actually, this this film I found kind of unsatisfying. Do you want me to jump in, Thomas? Or do you want to go first? Yeah. Well, I would. I'll pick up on that idea of the real lack of narrative inf- information in the film because that's one of the things I really loved about it. I, I, I really dislike the, the tendency we have in a lot of modern, modern cinema to over-explain everything to the point that you feel stupid. And I'm sure you, you share that feeling as well. Um, and the, the constant exposition and the long-winded character motivation and the constantly you know, having to bring us up to speed, where, where older films like Close Encounters and Starman and all films from that era often didn't do that. We actually we actually saw characters doing their jobs or, you know, certain things would happen and you just went with it because you, you realised, well, these people seem to know what they're doing. I'm just going to trust that, that, that whatever they're doing is something they're capable of, there's a reason, and that information might be delivered to me later. I loved not having a lot of information about this film. I love the ambiguity and I found it incredibly engaging and it meant that so many unusual things that started to happen were completely outside of you know, any expectation about where this film was going to go because I didn't quite know who were the good guys and who weren't. I mean, for a lot of the film, we don't know whether Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton who've kidnapped this boy, we don't know if they're really looking after this boy's welfare. And I think there's a bit of an exploited child uh, metaphor going on in this film because everybody wants his child for some reason. The cult want him, the FBI want him. Adam Driver, who has a role very similar to Peter Coyote in um, E.T. Or even Francis Truffaut or Bob Balaban in in, um, Close Encounters, sort of as the government man who starts to to feel sympathetic for for these people. Um, And and given Nichols' previous focus on fatherhoods and masculinity and, and boys trying to avoid bad role models to be good people, I think there's some really nice things in this film and the interesting comparison to Close Encounters I had is Close Encounters is about a man who loses his family, his obsessiveness alienates his family and then he abandons them. This is a film about a man who is making incredible sacrifices for his son that I actually found tremendously moving. Having said that, I love this film. I I was so tense, so enjoying it. There's a scene at a, a petrol station which is one of the most exciting pieces of cinema I've seen this year. Uh, having said that, I think 24 hours after watching the film, it occurred to me that I was let down by the ending. It does promise a big reveal, and it does deliver a reveal, but it didn't give me the emotional satisfaction I was craving. It wasn't like Close Encounters, because that big feel-good extended sequence at the end of Close Encounters is one of my favourite pieces of cinema ever. And I kind of wish this film didn't go ahead and show us as much as it did. But otherwise, I just thought this was spectacular. It felt like a film that was made specifically for my sensibilities. I think I'm going to... 
agree with both of you in, in, in you know, a strange way because you've sort of almost given divergent opinions but come around to the same place. Uh, about halfway through this film, I caught myself thinking, is this going to be the best film I see this year? I was so enamoured and, you know, strangely, in hindsight, I look back and I think I had that same response halfway through Take Shelter and halfway through Mud. I think Nichols, when he works in an ambiguous mode, when he's playing on those ambiguities, is a remarkable filmmaker. And yet I find each of the endings of those three films, to varying degrees, I should acknowledge that, unsatisfying. I think I even said when we watched Take Shelter, my only criticism and was it should have ended like 20 seconds earlier. Yeah, he has a problem with endings, doesn't he? And I think it's a credit to... It shows you how good a filmmaker Spielberg is that he can pull off the the grand payoff at, at the end like he does with Close Encounters, like he does with E.T., like he does with so many of his films of that period. And for me, it was the ending that was the game changer on this because I was so invested and I found the ending so deeply unsatisfying. And I think it's in part it's because it, it removes some of the wonderful ambiguity that we get through much of the film but it also alters the scale and if you think about the the endings of close encounters the endings of et they're not so grandiose they're grandiose on a small scale and this felt grandiose on a grand kind of epic scale and i just i didn't buy it it didn't wash with me at all and i feel uh you know i feel sort of torn in in confessing that because i'd enjoyed the film so much up until that point i'm almost tempted to give it a rewatch and see if i feel the same way on a on a second viewing but yeah i think there's, there's something so beautiful about this film and the way in which Nichols seems so strong in working with those ambiguities. I mean, so much of this film, stylistically as well, is is in these kind of strange half lights. Like it all takes place in dusk or or dawn. And the opening sequences of this film are so beautiful and disorienting too. Because as you mentioned, Cerise, we don't know if Michael Shannon, who appears to be his father, is in fact you know has has um, altruistic intentions or whose welfare he's really sort of interested in. And I like that kind of ambiguity, but. Yeah, something about the ending just felt incredibly unsatisfying. It's interesting that just as it should so happen, Thomas, we began this uh, episode with you reading from a letter um, (laughs) on the matter of whether a film needs to make sense or not. And this film has a a very clear narrative drive. It's just that... um, for me, uh, it takes certain leaps that, uh, okay, I can go along with them to a point, but then when that big reveal comes, uh, we're expected to accept the nature of the relationship between father and son, and let's say another character, without giving anything much away, that is, it actually makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, because it's just, I mean, why wouldn't you twig if you were, say, the father about the nature of some things, or maybe even if you have, uh, why would you wish to head in this direction and i mean it's just it doesn't actually make any sense at all so um yeah i just I sort of shrugged my shoulders but i did admire some of the filmmaking prowess on display there's a lot of tension uh, michael shannon plays most of this film gritting through his teeth uh, through gritted teeth he's he's he doesn't blow up like he has in some other films. I've seen some incredibly combustible performances from him. So he actually really downplays Joel Edgerton. I mean, he always looks like he's sucking on a lemon, but nonetheless, <laughs> he still has this real presence there, this real stoicism. I really liked Edgerton in yeah. this film. Yeah. 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 There's something quite sweet about their relationship, actually, between those two men, which 
yeah, it's just a very sweet friendship. And Joel Edgerton is sort of going along for the ride, sort of just out of a pure sense of goodwill, sort of. There's something actually yeah. quite beautiful and pure about old that. Old friends, yeah. an old friendship revived, a strange story. Oh, yeah, all right. And Kirsten Dunst I really liked in this as well. Maybe we won't go into details about her involvement, but I think she adds a lot of emotional gravitas to the film. I think, I think it does make sense. I think it just deliberately is not going to give us all the answers. It just tells us, you're going to have to go with this because it's, it's unimportant. And in the last few seconds of the film give us a bit of a clue as to maybe some something grander that was going on above our understanding of the film i think a rewatch would be interesting i think part of what the problem with yeah part of what the problem is with that final reveal is it's so damn literal it is crushingly literal both aesthetically and in terms of the narrative in a way i was relieved that they were very much went with it. Like the first time we saw the beginning of that reveal, my heart sank a little bit. And then they just completely went with it and I thought, well, at least you're going completely with it. But yeah, it's like that that special edition of Close Encounters where Spielberg was told by the studios, you can only re-release the film if you put all the inside the spaceship stuff in there. And it just took away some of the magic. And and I think, um, yeah, the, the ending of this film takes away some of the magic. But um, not enough for me to completely lose faith in, you know, how much I invested in this film. But that's the other point of difference between, say, Spielberg from Carpenter and, and this film is that those films don't operate in that same degree of ambiguity. I mean, we know from the start, yeah. you know, E.T. has been lost on Earth. We know that he needs to get to a certain place but to a certain time in order to be found out. That's the, actually, actually, that's the identical plot to Starman. It's the same plot as Starman, Starman, yeah. And Close Encounters. Mm. We've got a place people need to get there by a certain time. So mm. the the, um, the reveal Close doesn't... Close Encounters has a slower reveal, though. It, it def- definitely has a slower but reveal, but yeah. it doesn't play on the ambiguities in the same way that this film Correct. does. And yep. I think so when the payoff comes... We've almost been expecting it, and then we get the kind of the, the emotional power as well. Whereas, because this film, for me at least, shifts in terms of the tone and the style from in this sort of wonderful moodiness and ambiguity to something that you mentioned is quite literal. For me, maybe that's what how it, uh, that's how I explain the, uh, the why it feels potentially unsatisfying. I'm not sure. I'm still trying to wrestle with this how I could shift opinion so vastly towards the end of a film that I was clearly enjoying so much prior to that. Yeah, I think he's got a problem with endings. Yes. I don't think... He's a 90% great director. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't mentioned Shotgun Stories, which is his first film that none of us had seen. But when we talked about Take Shelter, Tara uh, mentioned that... Tara Judah, original co- co-host, mentioned that she had seen Shotgun Stories and thought it was fantastic. So, yeah, I don't know, just, just those endings. Anyway, uh, we've been talking about Midnight Special. It's on limited release at the moment. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple Drunk, stoned, brilliant, dead. This is a documentary about the founding of the American satirical magazine National Lampoon in 1970 that went on to become a multi uh, a multimedia operation that included comedy albums, radio serials, theatre shows and films such as Animal House and Vacation. Uh, this documentary presents the magazine founders as a weird mix of anarchists, hippies and proto-punks who all came together to ruthlessly mock American culture in ways that were often shocking and questionable, perhaps even more so by today's standards than at the time, but more often than not, very clever and very funny. I thought so anyway. What about you two? 
yeah, I love this documentary. <laughs> That's great, wasn't it? Um, I saw this first time around at MIF, around MIF last year, and, uh, you know, my first reaction was, how did I not know that National Lampoon emerged from, like, the Harvard Lampoon, like, that it was a publication? My, you know, I'd grown up thinking National Lampoon began with, like, Animal House and, and mm. the, the vacation films. Um, I think this film is, is important, not just great stylistically, but I think it's important as an antidote or historical antidote to this idea that Saturday Night Live is the reason for the the comic revolution in America that occurred in the 1970s. I think watching this documentary, you start to get a sense that actually maybe the what is commonly considered the kind of the halcyon days of American 70s comedy actually emerged out of this publication and the talent that this publication brought in in terms of the writers and the the performers. I mean, you know, guys like Bel- we see Belushi, we see Bill Murray, we see a number of the figures who would then go on to be kind of you know um, staples of the Saturday Night Live comedy scene emerge from this. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful documentary. It's so visually energetic as well. That was the other thing that really struck me. I mean, the the kind of the comic energy, the use of archival footage. This is this is kind of joy. This is a, this is a joyous ninety minutes. I really loved it. I and I've watched it twice now. And 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 as you say, Josh, yeah, it did not begin with Saturday Night Live. It really began with National Lampoon. And in fact, Saturday Night Live, which is touched upon in this film, kind of gutted National Lampoon. Took all their best performers and and writers. You know, Gilda Radner, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray. A bit later, I. think think. I don't think he was original cast. Um, uh, who am I missing? Belushi. Belushi, yeah, of course. Yeah. And Chevy um, Chase. Chevy yeah. Chase, yeah. Who, who is, of, of the people we've spoken about, featured quite heavily in this film. Um, Chevy Chase speaking about his friendship with one of the founders of National Lampoon is probably one of the most moving things I've seen Chase do. He's not normally somebody you associate with intense emotional feeling, but but you know, one of the two founders did die quite young under mysterious circumstances that is debated in the film and Chase is clearly very very moved that's a great moment but yeah, PJ, PJ O'Rourke worked on this and we got lots of interviews with him John Hughes had went on to do you know Breakfast Club he was an early contributor that was quite a revelation learning how filthy he and was how faulty <laughs> and dirty yeah. he was yeah and how envelope pushing uh, he was as a, a younger writer of uh, filth and depravity in the pages of National Lampoon I, too, knew very little of the origins of this whole, uh, what I now understand to have been almost an empire for a while there before the, the, it started to burn out and, and the talent be filched by... Um, Lord Michaels. Lord Michaels, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it was it was fascinating to learn to learn this that what began on campus at Harvard to a pretty minimal readership uh, soon became a, a nationwide uh, phenomenon, uh, largely... Uh, fueled by a particular uh, shift to a particular illustrator and a particular style that uh, was inclusive of uh, these sort of little photo panels, like comic strips, but with photos featuring the actual people who worked on this thing. And that this whole uh, documentary mimics that uh, that particular format throughout and and, uh, and quasi-animates those little photographic uh, strips is, is rather lovely. It pays tribute to the actual form of what all of this grew out of. That this then went into the theatre and then eventually television. It was something, and, and film, of course. Um, the one thing that didn't surprise me was that it was a very much a boys' club. Uh, we don't meet a lot of women folk who are involved with all of this, and even the one woman whose name escapes me right now that we hear about the most, we only ever see her shot, and almost a long shot. She's on a couch in the distance of a, a room talking about how she made her way into this on her back, um, you know, making light of it. But it's also quite indicative, I think, of that this was not exactly a, um, a, a progressive environment for all people. On the other hand, 
There was an, a lot of extremely funny stuff and the radio excerpts we hear at intervals. Uh, like, uh, we heard only a little bit of that song you just played, Thomas, during the film itself. But, yeah, some of that stuff is so dark. Mm. I can only imagine turning a dial in on your radio and stumbling upon that by accident the and being horrified but also probably very amused. Well, the film opens with an incest joke which was broadcast on radio. But it's kind of a brilliant joke because it's about the hypocrisy of good American values. But it is shocking. Shocking and very, very funny. But um, I, I, you know, hear what you have to say, Josh. But I think that point you make about how women weren't very much included in this group and there aren't very many women who are interviewed in the film uh, is an important point to make because the film that there's one thing the film really glosses over it acknowledges race which is very controversial but it doesn't acknowledge its fairly average um treatment of okay. of women and attitudes towards gender i mean naked women are the butt of many many jokes in, in <laughs> this yeah and it's a little wonder that when uh national lampoon went towards film that the first thing that came out of that was of course the ultimate frat boy party film yeah. uh, animal house but um, god bless them yeah <laughs> Uh, John Belushi, I'd always heard of him being referred to as this sort of rock and roll comedy figure. Uh, seeing him live on stage in this footage in this film was a bit of a revelation to me. He gave an uncanny Joe Cocker. Yeah, it was great, brilliant. Isn't it? Yeah. But also just, uh, yeah, I, I've never quite understood the cult of Belushi, but then I don't think I've seen that much footage. And there is some great footage in this that shows actually just how charismatic a presence he was um, on stage and behind a microphone and standing and rolling about and writhing and jumping up and down. Incredible energy, but also, yeah, there's some real brilliance there. I get it now. Yeah, on the back of this, um, the first watch of this documentary, I was inspired to start re-watching a lot of the National Lampoon's films from Animal House through Vacation, and they, I think most of them really stand up quite well, and you can see the influence of the, of the talent there. And I had completely forgotten, I guess still processing it through the eyes of a child when I first saw it, how risque even the first vacation film is. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's drugs, sex, there's incest jokes. Incest is there again, you know, too. Yeah. A dog is being tortured, <laughs> a grandma dies in the, in the back of the car. This happens all within the first sort of half an hour of the film. It's like, wow, this film feels quite way out for contemporary standards, let alone in the 1980s. But I, I think it's worth coming back to that issue about the sexism. And, and you know, it, it ties back in. It's something that the documentary deals with in terms of commercial imperatives, like when the, the lampoon starts um, failing in terms of its sales. <clears throat> How do we reinvigorate that well sex sells so they resort to kind of the the tna style marketing but in some ways it is progressive i think in terms of both race and politics i mean it's was very and you see this um, at various times throughout the documentary the way it satirizes brutally the vietnam war and, and other issues that were going on i mean this was such a politically tumultuous era you know late 60s early 70s and through that time for for america and it also brings to mind something i mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked about the role of satire and parody and you know what role does parody and satire have when the lines between reality and satire seem to have blurred as in the current sort of political climate in the states i think this and here yeah well and here as well yeah um you know i think this it harkens back to a time when satire and parody had quite a clear effect and and you know you see that the influence of this in the documentary well it's interesting because the times that this was made in were pretty extreme you know that it was a tumultuous time this this whole counterculture movement was was this big new surge of thought and i think what they had to do is go back to the original idea that the, you know the surrealists and the dadaists had which you have to shock 
the hell out of the bourgeois. And to do that, it has to be really offensive and tasteless. And they went there quite boldly. Uh, but the humour is smart. Like, you know, the, the racial stuff is savage. But as we see, it, the, nobody gets off lightly. And, and the jokes are more about the, the perpetrators of, of racism and violence. You know, that's the difference. You know, it, it, it's not like Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. No. It's, not, it's not doing parodies of race. It's doing parodies of the way racism functions in society to, to oppress people. And that's what I think is really sophisticated about this film. But, the, gee, some of the humour in it is, is really dark. But I, I laugh so much. And, and I did... And I'm so grateful not a single time in the entire film did anybody say the words politically correct. Like, they just avoided that kind of nonsense because there's this kind of feeling that this edgy type of comedy has been destroyed through political correctness. It's, it's not the case. No. Political correctness has stopped people being douchebags to each other by making really lame, boring, obvious jokes that aren't true and based on stereotypes. This kind of edgy comedy is something different. Having said that, I, I do wonder what, if there's a place for this kind of edgy comedy in the mainstream like there was in the 70s. Look, even at that time, uh, contemporaneously in England, uh, Oz magazine w- led to this famous obscenity trial where I think hilariously uh, an obscene Rupert the Bear comic landed the makers of a very similar cult- um, similar sort of produ- uh, publication that came out of the counterculture. And a couple of, at least one Aussie in there too, Richard Neville. Nev- uh, Wasn't never the editor an Australian? Yeah. Uh, was he the editor? There were three, three principles, yeah. as I recall. Uh, and that, that there has been some. Um, I don't know if there's been a good doco made about that, but there was a good trial of Oz um, uh, fiction dramatization I've some seen, years I've back. I've seen that in which Nigel yeah. Planer plays John Peel, just weirdly, it was fantastic. Um, and I, I think it, it's, it's fascinating that we don't get any any point in this film where we're seen, we, we see the people responsible for National Lampoon on trial anywhere. That didn't seem to did it not at any point press any of those sort of buttons that led them all to court it didn't seem to have it's interesting well when was um larry flint when was larry flint yeah yeah, just, yeah. i just thought of two taken to trial for it was a little later maybe was it um i don't know I don't it's been a while was the from people versus larry, larry flint, flint yeah. depicted all that and actually just talking about pornography that that you know some of the edginess humor in this reminded me of some of the stuff that they talked about in the, that larry flint film but um but I guess it came from a more kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say worthy or moral place, but I guess it did. It sort of... It was Harvard. It was Harvard. There was a real purpose behind behind this humour. That's what that's what made it work. Um, yeah, even if it was... Act- even if naked women were often used as the punchline for, for jokes. It is curious, though, that they make the difference between the earlier editions where there were... Like, like, you know, the reverse Playboy cover where she has a tan lines <laughs> reversed, which I laughed at that. But they made that... that You know, they said there was a difference between the humour they were doing in the early editions to when things went horribly downhill in the 80s and they resorted to just blatant, uh, yeah, TNA-type stuff. Yeah. So, um... They saw that difference, but um, well, which clearly presumed a principally male audience all along. I don't think that's yep. something they suddenly thought where they realised, oh, we just needn't even bother um, trying to appeal to the women we've lost. I don't think they'd actually lost the women, uh, female no, audience; they, they just there. never had it. No, it was very much a frat boy fraternity, you know, within that sort of sphere. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and there were a lot of drugs, <laughs> obscene <laughs> amount of drugs. Yeah, 
yeah, and, and just to finish up, just stressing a point you make, Josh, I, I really like the fact that they looked at how the art direction of a magazine can make or break it and the way they incorporated the successful art direction into the style of the film. Just very sophisticated documentary filmmaking. Uh, yeah, really enjoyed this one. Um, you won't have too many more chances to see it. National Lampoon, Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, Dead is screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image until the 3rd of May, courtesy of Transmission Films. Uh, Cartel Land is available on Home Entertainment through Man Man Entertainment and Midnight Special is on limited release through Roadshow Films. You've been listening to myself, Thomas. Thomas. Said by Sean Connery. Thomas Cordwell, you've also been listening to Josh Nelson and Reese Howard here on Plato's Cave 3 Triple R. We'll be back next week. Hopefully, Alexandra Helen Nicholas will be able to join us. We hope she is doing well and feels better very soon. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3 Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.